Good morning, everyone. My name's Naomi, and today I will be reading the passage, uh, which is from Psalm chapter 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw their prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. For their callous hearts come, from their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm coming to you today from the Padair Chapel, where we hope to meet again face-to-face very soon. Today we come to the uh, end of our series on Psalms with Psalm 73, which is one of my favourite Psalms. And you can see the outline um, under the Notes tab Um, on your screen of where we're going. Psalm 73 is a significant psalm because it introduces us to a form of lament, uh, not often seen in the psalms, a form of lament where doubts and uncertainties are expressed with regard to God's justice and his goodness, and particularly in this psalm with respect to his people. Of course, in a fallen world full of trouble injustice and suffering, there's always been a debate about the goodness of God in the face of this reality. 
Psalm 73, however, deals with questions, this question, in a very personal manner. The psalmist looks around at his world and he sees many people who do not care at all about God living quite a carefree and prosperous life, while his own circumstances seem to be just the opposite. The psalm then is not really interested in the philosophical question of God's goodness as such, but particularly in God's goodness towards his people. Is God good to his people? How do you feel when you do your best to love God, to serve him, to care for others, but there doesn't seem to be a lot coming back in return? You suffer from ill health, maybe have experienced the death of a loved one, lose your job because of hard times or because the business is not doing well, or your business itself suddenly goes under. Your family and friends don't want to know you really, and many people just like to ridicule your Christian faith. Is God good to his people? Is it really worth it to keep plugging on in your faith? At the other end of the scale, what about all those who shun God, want to do their own thing, treat people poorly, amass wealth at the expense of others, the rich and famous, where money can buy just about anything? Why is life good to them when they are evil in God's eyes? But not so much for me. Is God good to his people? Or is such a thing made foolish by what we see around us? In this psalm we see the brutally honest confession of one of God's faithful who found what he observed very troubling, so much so that he almost lost his faith. What we see here, friends, as a, a subtitle that I've given here is what I call the Song of a Slipping Saint. His name is Asaph, and with Psalm 73 we begin to move away from psalms written by King David to those written by others. Asaph is the writer of Psalm 73, and he is mentioned several times in 1 and 2 Chronicles. He's a Levite who is the chief uh, in the group of Levites who are musicians appointed by King David to lead the praise and worship um, of God among his people. Initially at the tabernacle um, and later on at the temple that David's son Solomon built. You might say in today's terms therefore that he was a mature believer and a worship leader. And yet in Psalm 73 we find an honest account of how he almost lost his faith. This form of lament has three parts. It begins with a declaration of faith, but then proceeds secondly to cast doubts about the truth of that declaration. And then finally, however, the psalmist comes to a new understanding of God that leads him to greater praise than he had before. Psalm 73 then begins, first of all, with God's goodness stated. In verse 1 we read, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That the whole psalm really is centred around the theme of God's goodness to his people 
is shown by the fact that it begins and ends with the word good. Good occurs, as we've just read in verse 1, but note verse 28, where the psalmist concludes, it is good to be near God. Asaph then begins by declaring that God is good to Israel, good to his people, to all those, he says, who are pure in heart. And purity here means more than just morally pure. The term has a much broader meaning. It is the pure in heart. Those to whom God is good and refers more to the attitude, an attitude to God himself, a sincere, dedicated commitment to the service of God. Notice that the word heart, if you look through and glance through the psalm, occurs six times in the psalm and indicates the focus and importance for the writer. God is good then to the pure in heart. So this is a reference in the first instance to one's allegiance rather than one's actions, one's commitment, one's love, one's ultimate trust. Asaph begins by stating what he has learnt, what he has been taught. God is surely good to his people, to all those pure in heart. But then with brutal honesty, he says in verse 2, that as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So from God's goodness stated, he moves quickly to God's goodness questioned. From verse 3 now, right through to verse 16, he relates uh, the reasons behind his questioning of God's goodness. But overall, they're summarised in verse 3. His doubts, his questions, etc. came because of his assessment of his own circumstances when compared with the prosperity of the wicked. He says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy overtook him, particularly of those who prospered, the arrogant who prospered, though they gave no thought to God at all. The word translated prosperity is actually the Hebrew word shalom, a very significant work in Jewish thought. Shalom was the blessing of God to his people, not simply about wealth and possessions, but peace and health and the enjoyment of life. We might call it today by a very popular term at the moment, well-being. To say that what he observed was the shalom of the wicked was really some sort of bombshell. The very thing meant to be the blessing of the righteous was here being prescribed to the wicked. And it brought up in him this common human emotion of envy. Envy. A very human and very powerful emotion. Have you ever been envious of something? Maybe of what uh, someone else possesses compared to you? Or of that person who got the job or promotion ahead of you that you were after? of the person who never seems to have a care in the world. I'd be very surprised if you haven't. I was originally trained as an accountant and had an honours degree in accounting, a very rare thing back then. At the end of university, 
I could have virtually written my own ticket in the business world. But by then I'd become a Christian and knew God was leading me in a different direction. We used to have a standard joke in our family amongst our children of how nice it would have been for me to follow that course and enjoyed the two-storey house, the pool and everything that went with it. But on a more serious note, there was a time not long after we came over to Adelaide. We struggled financially and uh, with a new home loan and uh, to make ends meet. One night at the dinner table, Meredith and I found out that our two um, eldest children, Tammy and Stephanie, were being teased at school at year six uh, about their shoes, lack of a brand name, like the rest of the kids. I found it particularly unpleasant and initially envied those kids and the money they had compared with us. I'll tell you a bit more of that conversation later on. Asaph goes on to list the things that he envies about the wicked. In verses 4 and 5 he says, They have no struggles. Life is good. There's no ailments. They're not plagued by human ills. They're just strong and healthy. This contrasts with his own situation in verse 14 where he says he suffers daily affliction. Then in verses 6 and 7 he refers to the pride of the wicked. They wield their power how they wish, often with violence. I certainly could think of a particular president at the moment who I think could very much, you could very much say that pride is his necklace. And then thirdly in verses 8 to 12, the wicked are those who scoff at people like him and even at God himself arrogantly trivialising any involvement or concern for God or that God might have for the human predicament. They just go on amassing wealth. We don't have to look far in our world, do we? Whether it be in our own society or that of many others to see how the rich keep getting richer and the poor poorer. And sometimes you look around and just shake your head. Why is it so? And so the psalmist says in all honesty in verses 13 and 14, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. Most of you know that a couple of years ago we lost um, one of our identical twin daughters, Stephanie, to bowel cancer at age 35. She gave up a financially lucrative career as a psychologist here in Australia to serve with CMS in one of the most difficult countries in the world, Afghanistan. Because she'd learned, uh, because she had a heart to see Muslim people um, come to know the Lord Jesus. Not only did we lose a cherished daughter, but it just seemed crazy that she would die when she was having such a significant ministry for the gospel in a land where there was so little gospel witness. Now something like this is not just our own story, but I've known many of God's people for whom 
who could relate similar experiences. For Asaph, this sort of thing, he says in verse 16, troubled him deeply. But then came the turning point, the revelation that changed everything. The psalm moves from God's goodness question to God's goodness known. In verse 16 and 17, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. Now we're not sure whether this reference to the sanctuary is literal here, referring to the actual temple uh, built by Solomon or simply talking about his meeting with God in some way, possibly as he led the music and praise of the Israelite people. Whatever it was specifically, his focus, you see, shifted from everybody else and what they had and turned towards his God. It was then that his perspective entirely changed. Notice it didn't change what he observed. Although I think we could probably say that when he looked out on the world, um, he probably had a somewhat surface perspective. One often finds that what appears on the surface, health, wealth and riches, so often masks other things like conflict, hurt and suffering underneath. What changed was his perspective about God's goodness to his people. God's goodness became real and personal to him through two things. First, it came through realising the difference in final destiny. The difference in the destiny of wicked and the destiny of the pure in heart. In verses 18 to 20 and verse 27, the destiny of the wicked is given. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And in verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. You see, the writer realises that the apparent prosperity of the wicked is in fact short-lived. What they have now is all they have. Prosperity is so fleeting, whether it be wealth, health or enjoyment of life, in the end it's so short. Surely in the pandemic of COVID-19 today, we at least ought to be reminded of this. It's like a dream, says the writer. You wake up and it's gone. And all you'll face is the judgment of God. But for the faithful, this short life will turn into a glorious eternity. In verse 24, the writer says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Now, of course, we're not quite sure what the writer had in mind in referring to the term glory here because there was really no developed concept of the afterlife in the Old Testament until very much near its end. 
But the reference to afterward certainly indicates a confidence in some way in the future security of God's people. And for us, however, the truth of what Asaph relates is so much clearer. The hope of glory has been revealed through the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ. God gave up his own Son to die on our behalf for our sins and rise to new life at the right hand of God for eternity as the firstborn of many brothers and sisters to come. God's people, those who now trust in Jesus and seek to follow him and his teaching, are guaranteed an eternal world, a world that Revelation 21 describes as one where there is no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, an eternal world of glory. A few weeks ago I was uh, I watched a movie, a true story, about a young Christian man suffering from a form of leukaemia. And despite he was diseased, he was full of hope and joy. He used to drive around in a van which was coloured entirely pink. One day he was talking to his girlfriend who was struggling to come to grips um, with her own face and what was happening to the person she loved. This young man pointed to the van. He pointed out a small blemish in the paintwork on the van and he said that that's what it's like now. But then in contrast he pointed to the unblemished pink all over the whole van and said, that is what's to come. The blemish was nothing at all compared with what God had in store. And I thought, yes, that is right. There simply is no comparison. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This Asaph had come to realise when he focused on God, you see, and realised the difference in destiny. Really, he was such an idiot to think otherwise, just stupid and foolish. He says in verse 21 and 22, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. How foolish, friends, to be envious of the prosperity of anyone in this life who does not know Jesus. Their end is only judgment and destruction. But to those who belong to Jesus, they have a guaranteed eternal glory waiting for us. God is indeed good to his people. And yet the psalmist refers to much more than that. He not only realises the magnitude of his destiny compared with the wicked, he realises that his relationship to God now, that he enjoys now, 
is so much more precious than those things he had envied before. God's goodness is known not only with the glory of our destiny, but through cherishing God's presence with us now and always. So in verse 23 to 26 we read, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How easy it is, my friends, when things are tough, when tragedy strikes, when others ridicule your Christian faith, to totally underestimate what we have now in having a relationship with the living God. God is always with us. As Jesus himself said to his disciples, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And we know this so much more than Asaph did because God has given us his Holy Spirit to each believer. A seal and deposit, says Paul in Ephesians 1.14 of the glory to come. Asaph was guided by God's counsel. We have the wonder of the completed word of God from the creator and sustainer of the universe. We know the full story of God's plans. We know why the world is the way it is. I've been a Christian for a little over 45 years and I can tell you that one of the greatest things about being a Christian is simply knowing the truth about life, the real meaning of life and the certainty of the future. And this relationship with God, of course, is not just one way, as if God does all the relating and we do all the receiving. The relationship is real. God is with us. It's utterly profound. We pray because he is with us. Because he wants to hear from us, answer our prayers in a way that's best for us. And we joyfully praise him in word and song, individually and corporately, as an expression of this relationship. There's too many times to count the times I've seen my own and the prayers of others answered in ways often I can only marvel at. How good it is, as Asaph says in verse 28, to be near God. How good indeed. What benefit, prosperity or well-being in life can replace that? Earlier I told you about the time um, we were around the dinner table where we talked as a family uh, with Tammy and Stephanie about being teased by the lack of brand named shoes. But as we talked it became clear that what we shared as a family because of our common relationship to God and love for each other was so much more than their classmates at school. Under the surface of prosperity there was so much division, hurt and loneliness. 
Of course it still hurt to be teased and ridiculed, but there was no more envy because we were so much better off than their friends ever knew. So the psalmist concludes, Who, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth has nothing, there is nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph came to the realisation that I hope everyone today, listening today, will come to or already know. The truly rich person is the one who possesses, not the one who possesses wealth, health and happiness, but the one who knows God and come to know his wonderful goodness in relationship with him. As one writer says, there can be no greater treasure than covenantal relationship with the God who is near and involved in the lives of human beings. As I get older, my flesh certainly is failing. But I've never been more sure of God's goodness to his people. Every day these words of Psalm 73 are more true, more real, more precious than anything else I could possess. And I pray that that may be true for you today also. God is my portion forever. The triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit and the strength of my heart. As the psalmist says at the very end in verse 28, let's tell anyone who listened, who will listen, about the goodness of our God. Amen.